I know the bulletin says that I'm Ruth Rennie, but I'm not. Um, Ruth wasn't feeling well this weekend, and so I'll be reading the text uh, of Scripture uh, just a bit later on. When I do it myself, I'd like to do it after uh, the introduction. So um, I'll be taking that up in just a, a, few, a few minutes. Um, Ruth, we hope you get well and look forward to having you back soon. I'd like to pick up where we left off last Sunday, which was with God graciously helping Adam and Eve. I don't know who's on sound, but I've got a tinny sort of echoey thing. I don't know if it's happening out there, but uh, um, it is uh, quite distracting. Thank you. God graciously helped Adam and Eve pick up the pieces of their once whole but now shattered lives and the newly experienced tragedy of estrangement in their relationship to God and to each other. After God declared his necessary judgment on sin and sinners, you will recall that we read in Genesis 3 verses 20 and 21 last week, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was a member, was the mother of all living, speaking of course of the all living human beings. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. From those early moments or days or months or years following the fall of humanity into sin, We don't really have uh, many timestamps in this narrative, so we don't know how much time has passed on from one event to the next. But because of his great, unchanging, and steadfast love expressed in his saving and sustaining grace, God began to implement his wonderful, self-sacrificial, and sovereign plan to redeem humanity and to reconcile all things to himself right then and there from very near the beginning. We see this ironically beginning in the very next verses, Genesis 3, verses 22, 23, and 24, where we read, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I want you to think about that for a second or 10. God's next act of sovereign grace very early in his post-fall relationship to human beings, whom he created in his own image, male and female, to image him and to represent him on the earth, was to close off the tree of life, literally to hide it, and then to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden, and this was sovereign grace in action. 
So a very early act of God's sovereign grace toward Adam and Eve and all their descendants was to deprive them of something wonderful. Don't miss that. Think about that for a moment and compare it with our approach to freedom in culture, society, and even church today. A very early act of God's sovereign grace toward Adam and Eve was to deprive them of something wonderful, namely the tree of life. Because of and by his sovereign grace, the Lord God closed off from Adam, Eve, and us also access to this tree of life, lest they and we be locked into an increasingly sinful, unchangeable, irredeemable state. Though he didn't close it off forever, and we'll see that at the end of our time together this morning. God's grace is truly amazing. If Adam and Eve or any of their descendants were to eat from the tree of life after falling into sin, they would have become immortally sinful, evil, and therefore irredeemable. Even by God in Christ Jesus, who is altogether righteous, holy, just, and merciful. A couple of definitions might be helpful. Redeem, R-E-D-E-E-M, redeem means to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of something or someone. Or to gain or regain possession in exchange for payment. Redeemable means able to be recovered or saved from faults or bad aspects. To be irredeemable, which Adam and Eve and all of their descendants would have been had they sinned and become immortal thereafter, is not able to be saved, improved, or corrected. This is also, by the way, why we never read in the Bible of fallen angels or the devil being saved or redeemed or redeemable. Nowhere does the Bible say that Jesus died for them. The rest of creation, the cosmos, yes, but not the devil and his fallen demon angel followers. It's not because God has a special hatred of the devil, which he does, or of the demons, which he does that too, or has a fear of rivals, which he doesn't. God has no rivals, as the song we'll sing at the end of our service says. It's because they are both evil and immortal and therefore irredeemable. Now I've heard, and perhaps you have too, what I assume to be well-meaning preachers preach, some of them Baptists, bless their hearts, that if the devil and his minions saw the error of their ways, sincerely repented and believed in Jesus, God would save even the devil and his demon followers. Now, I suppose this is meant to magnify God's grace and mercy, to make God even more gracious and merciful. But it's not true, and he doesn't need our help. There is nothing in the Bible like that, not even a hint. Jesus Christ did not die for the devil or the demons. They already believe in Jesus. They've known him since he created them at the beginning. They, they know God is good, righteous, and holy. They once stood in his gracious presence. And do you remember what the demons speaking through the Gadarene demoniacs said in Matthew 8? You'll, you'll, you'll remember 
their words, even if you don't remember the chapter and verse. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? If you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. There was what's been noted is a very similar event in Luke chapter 8, only it was just one desperate demon-possessed man this time who approached Jesus in a synagogue. And it reads, reads, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them. Notice that. They begged him, Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. No, the devil and the demons are irredeemable, and they know it, which is why they've become increasingly evil and desperate. Adam and Eve and all their descendants would have become and would also have remained increasingly, immortally, unchangeable, irredeemably evil. So God would have had to do a work of destruction, literally kill off the very humanity created in his own image to represent him on the earth and start over. But God in Christ wanted, he planned, he executed an elaborate project to deliver Adam and Eve, even all of humanity and all of creation from such a fate. And this is what the coming of Jesus as the word made flesh was all about. This is what his exemplary life and authoritative teaching were all about. This is what the road to and the enduring of the cross and a third day resurrection are all about. And just one, one more note, if we know our Bibles, specifically its record of the flood of God's own judgment in, in uh, Genesis 6 and, uh, through 9, then we know that God did start over in a sense with Noah and his family as well as representatives of the animal kingdom delivered safely by the ark. But that's a bit beyond our purview this morning, Noah, his family, and his ark. But the point is, God's plan to redeem Adam and Eve and all of humanity and all of creation was beginning in the moments after the fall. And it runs right through the cross. And it continues on right up until today. The central truth of our message, which is printed for you in the upper inside left of your bulletins, is this. Because God has truly reconciled us to himself and to each other in Christ Jesus, we of all people can truly rejoice in any circumstance. Because God has truly reconciled us to himself and to each other in Christ Jesus, we of all people can truly rejoice in any circumstance. If you're not there then already, please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And let's read the first 11 verses of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As you're turning there, uh, just let me just say to you that uh, Tuesday, Abby and I have an appointment. It's a very important appointment. And uh, it is an appointment with the immigration judge 
And uh, via Zoom, we are going to become, we hope, <laughs> Canadian citizens. And uh, so, so Shelley and Ashley are already ahead of us about three years ago, and then Abby and I applied, but then COVID happened and everything got backed up. And so we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And so about a week and a half ago, we got our letters that said, congratulations, meet us at uh, 10.15 on Tuesday, February the 15th, and uh, dress appropriately, even though you're gonna be on Zoom, it's an important occasion. So don't come in your flip-flops and your pajamas. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. So uh, um, praise the Lord, we'll be Canadian citizens. And, and as a postscript, I have, to, I have to apologize for all of that's going down on the, on the border. I'm afraid some American stuff has been imported in. It wasn't us, we didn't do it. So there's that. Uh, Romans chapter five, verses one through 11, therefore, and I, I just want to note verse 25 of chapter 4, right above it, will tell you what the therefore is therefore. Speaking of Christ, who was delivered up for our trans trespasses and raised for our justification. So Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, paying our penalty for sin. And then he was raised from the dead, by which resurrection we are justified with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Praise the Lord. Now, way back in 1998, which was probably before some of you were born, I'm getting older these days, I was in seminary at the time, Dr. David F. Wells published his excellent book, on a regrettable reality. Here it is right here. Losing our virtue, why the church must recover its moral vision. Losing our virtue, why the church must recover its moral vision. Nearing the conclusion of his book, he writes in a section entitled, Whatever Happened to the Church? I'm quoting. 
The biblical revelation with which the church has been entrusted is clear and insistent on the nature of sin, its consequences, and of course, its cure. Since this is a matter inextricably bound up with the nature of the gospel and beyond, behind that, with the work of Christ on the cross, I kind of mangled that sentence, so I'll read it over again. Since this is a matter inextricably bound up with the nature of the gospel and behind that, with the work of Christ on the cross, it might be supposed that on this or at least the church would be as clear and insistent as scripture is. This, however, does not take account of the church's frailty. The church's moral fabric has been worn down and its own sin in failing to grasp what sin is all about is apparently lost on it. In his book, Wells's big idea is that the church has become so worldly, that is, patterned after the world and led by the spirit of this age, rather than God's word in the Bible and led by God's spirit, that the church has become less and less distinguishable from the world and therefore less and less useful to God to bring his life and his light into the world. Consequently, Wells asks some convicting questions, such as, does the church have the courage to become relevant by becoming biblical? Is it willing to break with the cultural habits of the time and propose something quite absurd, like recovering both the word and the meaning of sin? Here in Romans 5, we find God's spirit coming at the truth of justification, our being made right with God by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, by means of reconciliation and being made righteous again. Today we'll deal with reconciliation and next Sunday we'll deal with righteousness. One of the very main points that Dr. Wells makes in his book that I've already cited as well as in most of his writing is that we reveal whether we belong to the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ or to the world both by the means we employ and the fruit that we bear. The means we employ and the fruit that we bear. For example, on the huge biblical emphasis on reconciliation, we largely reveal to God and everybody else whether we're reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, by our reconcilability. Are we reconcilable? If so, then we may belong to Jesus. If not, then likely not. So as we move to our focal text in detail in Romans chapter 5, let's consider our first major point of truth. Here it is, number one. The biblical definition and proof of reconciliation is peace. The biblical definition and proof of reconciliation is peace. Peace with God and a derivative, that is, it comes from our peace with God, and a derivative but necessary and real peace with others, so far as it is up to us. I'll give it one more time. The biblical definition and proof of reconciliation is peace. Peace with God and, I, and a derivative but necessary and real peace with others so far as it is up to us. Now I add that last part, so far as it is up to us, as a biblical reality check. 
Sometimes peace is not up to us. Sometimes reconciliation and the peace that would come with it are not attainable because not all parties are either reconcilable or want peace. Sometimes a situation can be irreconcilable because one or more of the parties is unwilling to reconcile. A parallel passage, Romans 12, 16 to 21, puts it this way, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, conditional number one, so far as it depends on you, conditional number two, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Whatever peace we have, if it's true, if it will be lasting, if it is the peace that passes all understanding, it will flow from the very peace with God that has been secured for us on the cross by Jesus Christ. And it will have been received by us through faith in him and his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross and applied to us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the very moment we are born again. Please notice the past, the perfect past tense of the verbs here in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, that's a, that's a past event, and this isn't an English class, but I'll just say briefly that the perfect tense uh, indicates a finished or closed event with ongoing benefit or ongoing action. So we have been justified with God, and that is ongoing now. It's a finished event, yes, but it's an ongoing process. Having been justified, we are continuing to be justified. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, have been justified by faith, we have peace. It's another perfect tense. Have peace now, currently, with God. It's not something that we attain. It's something that is given to us as a gift because of the justification we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. He is not at war with us. Jesus has taken all of that away. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, that is, through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I I love what the NIV does here. I I don't agree with the NIV always, but I do in this case. The NIV adds the word now, so it reads something like like this. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And that's the meaning of the text, that we are standing in a position or a state or a condition or a relationship of grace with God through Jesus Christ. 
That's the meaning here. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. Just want to remind you what our um, central truth of the message is. Because God has truly reconciled us to himself and to each other in Christ Jesus, we of all people can truly rejoice in any circumstance. And here we rejoice in hope of, glory, of the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the biblical definition and proof of reconciliation is peace. Peace with God and a derivative but necessary and real peace with others so far as it is up to us. The second thing that I would have us take from this text is this. Reconciliation with God produces godly character. Reconciliation with God produces godly character. In his people, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, most evidently in true godly hopeful love because God is love. Reconciliation with God produces godly character. In other words, in his people, in other words, if we're reconciled to God, if we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then he will not leave us where we are in our sin and our sinfulness, in our immaturity, in our, our laxity, reconciliation with God produces godliness or godly character. And the main proof of that, the main indicator of that, the main component of that is godly love because God is in fact himself love. Recently, we've seen one of the profound truths of Scripture is not merely that God loves us, which he does. It's profound. But God is love. This means that every aspect of the character of the one true and living God of the Bible is an expression of perfect, infinite, and never-ending love. We've seen and heard this from John's first letter, chapter 4, where we read from verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this is the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in God and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. Hang on to that for just a little bit. He, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the, the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in in him. So when we read Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, 3 to 5, we can perhaps understand it more fully. Verse 3, not only that, not only what? Well, not, not only that we've been justified by faith, not only that we have peace with God, not only that we've uh, obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, wait a minute, that's quite a turn. Those were all happy things, and now we rejoice, we, we rejoice in our sufferings? 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we see purpose in suffering, we see purpose in needing endurance, we see purpose in character that produces as, a, as an outcome or as a product hope. And verse 5, as you'll know, is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And hope does not put us to shame. The NIV says does not disappoint us. I think either one is okay because we have true faith in Jesus Christ and we don't over-realize his promises. And what I mean by that is we don't maybe apply promises for the next life to this life. That'll lead to much disappointment. But hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us because God's love, who is God? God is love. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us from God. So reconciliation with God produces godly character in his people by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Most evidently godly, truly hopeful love because God is love. Now I've shared with you in the past, Henry Blackaby's, he's the experiencing God guy. His statement on God's love for us and his statement is this, God's love for you was settled at the cross. There's nothing more God could have done to demonstrate his love for you Jesus died on the cross for you. That settles the issue. God loves you. And that's true. But there's more to God's love than the cross. I mean, that's, that's the most significant and profound thing. But there's more to it. It's number three. The three greatest, deepest, most real, and most fruitful acts of love ever offered in the history of the world is right here in verses 6, 7, and 8. A, God sending his son. B, God's son coming, Jesus Christ coming. And C, his son dying for us. The most remarkable aspect of God's infinite and everlasting love is that God loved us when we were still weak. We couldn't do anything for him, and he loved us anyway. Jesus loved us when we were ungodly. In fact, our sin sent him to the cross. He loved us anyway. God in Christ Jesus loved us even when we were still sinners. And he loved us through the deliberate death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God sent his son, act of love. His son came, act of love. His son ultimately died, act of love, was raised again, act of love, was ascended to heaven, act of love, and now intercedes on us, uh, for us, act of love. Let's look at it for a minute, Romans 5, verses 6, and 7, 6, 7, and 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, and we could talk about the timing, Galatians 4, 4 is, is maybe a reference you want to look at uh, here, but at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the three greatest, deepest, most real, and most fruitful acts of love ever offered in the history of the world was God sending his son, God's son coming, and God's son dying for us. Fourthly, and we're almost, we're almost home, reconciliation with God promises for us and produces in us eternal life. Reconciliation with God promises for us and produces in us eternal life. Now, perhaps the most important practical thing that I would say here this morning is that neither salvation nor eternal life are deferred promises. Meaning they don't begin later. We don't pick them up as door prizes as we enter the gates of heaven, if we enter heaven's gates. They aren't a a bait to entice us to live a good Christian life, whatever that may mean. Salvation is full, effective, and eternal deliverance from God's wrath and all the eternal consequences of sin now and forevermore. Eternal life is quite literally the presence, power, and life of the spirit of the resurrected Jesus Christ in us now and forevermore. Indeed, we learn also from our elder brother John that eternal life is Jesus Christ himself. And the fellowship we share is first immediate, second with the Father and his Son, and third with each other and every other born-again believer in God who ever lived at any time. Let's look first at our focal text, Romans 5, 9, and 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. So if we didn't get it the first time in verse 1, we get it now in verse 9, since we have now been justified. So, so it's a, it's, it, it is a fact for all who are born again, for all for whom Jesus died, we have been now and forevermore justified with God by Christ or in Christ. Therefore, since, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So this salvation picture, while it is a finished work in Christ, it is an ongoing work in us. We are saved. We have been saved. We will be saved. It is an ongoing work in us from the point of salvation when we are born again until we go to be with Jesus and we're in his presence. You see that in the text? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God that is coming on all sin but isn't here yet? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, that means enemies to God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now, that we are reconciled, so reconciliation is a done work already in Christ. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, past tense, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
Now hear this absolute theologically and spiritually parallel passage, the same truth rendered differently, again from 1 John, but in chapter 1, I just love this, these four verses. They may be my favorite four verses of scripture together. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, clearly speaking of Jesus Christ, it could say him, he who was from the beginning. Which we have heard, Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes. This is the Apostle John speaking here now, right? It's not, it, it, this is not something we should expect. This is something that John is saying. I am, I am an eyewitness testimony to this person in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he is, he is, was, and forever will be the son of the living God, savior of the world. John the Apostle saying that which was from the beginning, clearly speaking of Jesus Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning, okay, another word, another name for Jesus, the word of life, verse 2, the life, Jesus, was made manifest, and we have seen, your text probably says it, it could very well say him, and we have seen him, and testified to him, and proclaimed to you the eternal life. And he's not saying your eternal life, He's saying Jesus Christ is the eternal life. He is eternal life in himself who was with the Father and was made manifest to us. us. There's more. Verse 3. That which Jesus we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So reconciliation with God promises for us and produces in us eternal life now. And the most profound and undeniable reason is that Jesus himself is eternal life. Number five and last, reconciliation with God produces in us true worship, true fellowship, and eternal joy. Reconciliation with joy produces in us true worship, true fellowship, and eternal joy. Apart from reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ, what we might call worship can only be false. What we might call fellowship, apart from reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ, can only be superficial acquaintance. And any sense and substance of lasting and overcoming joy will elude us. Look at verse 11, and we'll finish here. More than that. Okay, so how can it be more than that? But that's what he says. He says, more than that. More than all that we've just read about in the first 10 verses. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Worship, fellowship, eternal joy in God because of Christ by faith. Don't miss this. Reconciliation with God produces in us worship of the one true and living God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God produces in us fellowship with the Father, the Son, and each other. Reconciliation with God produces in us wonderful, lasting, overcoming, even eternal joy in the spirit of the resurrected Christ. This has been In Christ We Are Reconciled 
to God. May we all aspire individually and as God's people to a renewed high view of God, a renewed high view of his word, and to a renewed high view of his creation, his whole creation, and our unique place in it. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we once again thank you for your word and for your spirit that gives us understanding and the ability to obey it. I pray, Lord, that you will continue the process of conforming us to your son, that we would continue to be more and more like him until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen.